and welcome to Old Testament in Faith, part of the In Faith series of podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Dynek, and this week we're going to get an introduction to the Old Testament, why it's still relevant to us today, and some key assumptions we need to have when we start reading it. Going to get old school today, so let's jump in. Well, as much as ever before, it's been an interesting week. The main thing is, next week, I start my new job. So this is the one that I was going to be starting in May. It was delayed due to COVID-19 issues and concerns. It is now back on. So I'll be working with Cleveland Metro Parks and their trail crew team from now until the end of October. So once again, I'm trying to set up a schedule that will allow me to keep bringing this podcast to you once a week. At this point, I'm not going to guarantee that. We're going to see day by day. This first week will be fairly telling. Like if this week I kind of fall behind there's a very good chance that I'll kind of get accustomed to the work and the hours and things like that. The good news is, at least for probably for you guys, because of the shortened season and the the little bit shortened budget, I'm not having to wake up at 4.30 in the morning, which I was getting less and less excited about that the longer this job was delayed. So it's fewer hours per day, and most often will be fewer hours per week, though there will be chances, I've been told, to still make up more hours on the weekend. But for now, this episode's coming to you, and then next week, I'm going to kind of make it a priority. There's a couple things I've got going on. If you subscribe to my newsletter, you've gotten this information already on my website. If you haven't, basically, I'm taking this next four months. So now that this job has started, and I've had to kind of prioritize different tasks. I've decided to prioritize the marketing of my existing series. The main reason for that being that I've got three books out there. I've seen already kind of an uptick in sales and some activity around the books and things like that, which is super exciting. And I kind of want to try to build on that if I can. So people so far that supported me through this author journey have been amazing. And I don't want to diminish how awesome that has been to have you guys. But in order to make the writing life a reality instead of just a dream of being a full-time writer, I'm going to need a lot more awesome fans just like you guys. So kind of focusing on that more so. Kind of the first priority is the podcast. The second priority is marketing. And then the third priority is going to be writing book four. So for now, that might get on hold until um, the fall. Then who knows? I might pick up, you know, even more full steam than I had before and get it done faster than we think. But for now, that's kind of the, the thing. So Hopefully still this podcast once a week. It may end up missing next week because of trying to get used to the new job and the new schedule and things like that. Um, but even if it does, still going to make every attempt for at least the first couple of weeks here to get this episodes to you once a week. If that just continues to be impossible, then I'll try to do it every two weeks and you know, we'll go from there. But I'll be updating you as we go on social media, on my website, and on each episode. As I said, it's been an interesting week and a lot of stuff is going on trying to transition into this new schedule and new new reality. Hopefully you're excited for me because we're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and I am rejoicing. So that's it for the update this week and let's go ahead and jump in. So welcome to the new series. I am very, very excited to get started on this. But before we do, let me give a quick note on our texts. For this Old Testament series, I'm relying on a few different resources. BibleGateway.com for the most recent version of the NIV scriptures that I'll be quoting. If I don't otherwise specify the version, it's that one. 
Second resource is blueletterbible.org. If you've been following this podcast, you know that that's the one I refer to a lot for studying the original Greek or Hebrew. And then the newest addition to my references is the Quest Study Bible, published by Zondervan in 1994. Therefore, it's centered around the 1984 version of the NIV instead of the newest version. So it's a little tattered around the edges, but it's got some good notes for things that I may refer to as we go. And obviously, 26 years of theological and archaeological study may have changed minds around some of these things, but it should still be a good place to start. So the Old Testament has a bit of a bad rap, I think. There are a few negative assumptions that I'd like to dispel first by way of introducing us to the next several months of our talks. When you mention the Old Testament, you generally get a few reactions. That Christians should be reading the New Testament, not the Old. That the Old Testament is difficult and seems to contain a lot of instruction that we can't reconcile with the New Testament, and that sometimes even seems to completely contradict what we see in the New Testament. Or that the Old Testament is boring. And the idea of an angry God compared to a compassionate Jesus. So let's take a look at each of these in turn, and then close out by answering a question that some of you may have on the validity of our current Bible. So first question, shouldn't Christians be reading the New Testament instead of the Old? Hasn't Jesus' death and resurrection and the New Covenant sealed by his blood done away with the Old Testament, or at least made it irrelevant? This is kind of an interesting assumption once we look at a few things here. First, it would be good to memorize this verse, and it's one we've looked at in our previous series, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, maybe you're familiar with this verse even outside this podcast, but what's fascinating to think about, though, is that this verse was written before there was a New Testament. Yes, there were other letters Paul had written before the second one to Timothy, and the Gospels and maybe even Acts were around prior to this second letter to Timothy as well. But in all probability, Timothy and the others who read this letter would not have yet considered those books to be Scripture. So when Paul says, all Scripture is useful, the assumption of Scripture would have been what we now call the Old Testament. Now, we do also have Paul's letters and the teachings by him and the other apostles and disciples who would have been teaching how to interpret those Old Testament scriptures in light of the New Covenant, which is what we're going to be doing here. But let's definitely not lose sight of the fact that the Old Testament was so important to the early church and was important to Jesus even. And when we consider the whole of scripture today, remember it says all scripture is God-breathed, and indeed we often call the Bible the Word of God. Around three-quarters of this Bible is Old Testament. And that's just for me counting the pages. It doesn't consider how many verses in the New Testament are quotes from the Old Testament. So actually more than three quarters is straight up Old Testament or pulled from there. That's not insignificant. If the whole Bible is truly the word of God, which I believe and you should too, how can we so lightly discard more than three quarters of it? If I disregard three quarters of everything you say, how well can I say that I know you, know what might be in your heart? And if you were talking to me and asked suddenly, are you listening? And I said, well, I've caught about a quarter of what you said. That wouldn't be listening. So we might even say that our understanding of the New Testament will always be incomplete without understanding also the Old Testament. Another fascinating passage to me comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. This is just after Jesus was raised from the dead, but before the apostles had all accepted his resurrection. Two of them are on their way to Emmaus, it doesn't really say why, and Jesus walks up to them without them recognizing him, and they begin to tell him in heartbroken tones everything that had happened to Jesus. Jesus then corrects them, and starting in verse 25, we read this. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Beginning with Moses. That's pretty deep back in the Old Testament. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, there were promises and covenants made even before that, pointing eventually to Jesus. So even our Lord and Savior relied on the Old Testament to help people understand about himself. Again, because that's all they had. What I want us to start getting ourselves away from is the idea that because we now have something else, that what came before is obsolete or irrelevant. To be sure, our Christian lives are made easier with the existence of the New Testament, which spells out pretty nicely what it means to live for Christ. Thank you, Paul, and the other apostles and disciples. But let's also remember these other words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is our biggest key, so let's take a minute to look closer at this verse. First, what the NIV renders as abolish, the King James Version translates as destroy, which seems to fit the Greek a little better. The Greek word here is kataluo, which is also translated elsewhere as destroy, throw down, come to naught, overthrow, or dissolve. Now here's a few deeper definitions of this word. To dissolve or disunite what has been joined together. To destroy or demolish. Metaphorically, to overthrow, that is to render vain, deprive of success, to bring to naught. To subvert or overthrow of institutions, forms of government, laws, etc. To deprive of force, annul, abrogate, discard. I like a couple things here in light of what we read in other passages concerning the law in regards to the new covenant. To deprive of success. The goal of the law was righteousness and right living before God. So Jesus did not come to deprive the law of success in that goal. He did not come to subvert or overthrow the law. Or dissolve. You've seen sugar dissolve in tea or coffee or something. You can't even see the individual particles anymore. It's as if they are completely gone. Interestingly, we know the sugar is still there and helps flavor whatever it is we've put it in. So Jesus didn't come to bring this effect to the law. But what did he come to do with it? Fulfill it, he says. This is the Greek word plerao. Again, can't roll my R's, so bear with me. This is most often translated as fulfill, 51 times in the King James Version, 19 times as fill, also to be full, complete, or to end. Well, we probably don't understand Jesus to say that I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to end them. Some might say that, but we won't. Probably the best definition for us to understand here is the last one. To carry into effect, bring to realization, realize. To fulfill, that is to cause God's will, as made known in the law, to be obeyed as it should be, and God's promises, given through the prophets, to receive fulfillment. This is where we find help in understanding why the Old Testament and New Testament sometimes seem to contradict each other. Not because one has been done away with or nullified, but because the Old Testament laws and prophecies were always pointing to something else. Every scripture has a spiritual component behind it. It is never simply there for its own sake, with effects and meanings only in the physical world. We've talked about this before, and it will come up more as we continue in this series. But all scripture, breathed by God, points ultimately back to him, his nature and character, and also ultimately to Jesus. The law was not given simply to be laws to follow, but to help us understand God as we follow them. But it was also not given because it was going to work. God never believed the law was going to make us righteous, which is why Jesus eventually came to fulfill it, to help us obey it as it should be, which is more about a spiritual obedience, a matter of the condition of our hearts, more than our heads. A friend once asked concerning this apparent contradiction, is it an eye for an eye or turn the other cheek? 
I wanted to answer by saying yes, but someone else started answering him first. A literal interpretation of the Old Testament would say, if someone slaps you on one cheek, you slap him back, an eye for an eye. A literal interpretation of the New Testament would say to turn the other cheek to him instead. God is supremely concerned about justice, but also about meeting us where we are. Under the Old Testament, we must understand that sin is answered by punishment. Equal punishment for equal sin. But God is the only one qualified to weigh those out. To truly understand the weight of one sin over another and what a just punishment might be. And under the New Testament, our punishment that we deserve was put on Christ. So if God displaces punishment onto his son for our sakes, we have even less right to dictate punishment on others. So we turn the other cheek not to destroy or render invalid the law, but to recognize that we as sinful humans have slapped the heck out of God and he perpetually turns the other cheek until the final day of judgment. So we were under the law of an eye for an eye first to display the image of a God who gives justice and punishes sin. Now we turn the cheek to display the image of a God who has put that punishment on Christ for those who believe in him instead of demanding it from us. We forgive because he also forgave us, Paul tells the Ephesians. Jesus warns us more boldly in Matthew chapter 6, verse 15, that if we do not forgive others, we will not be forgiven either. Third, when we mention the Old Testament, is the notion that the Old Testament is boring. And to be sure, without proper understanding, just reading the history and names of the Israelites does little to engage us. But again, when we look at scriptures from the time, we see people who thought what they had was far from boring. Psalm 119, the hugest chapter in the Bible and one that many Christians dread to read because of the time commitment that it requires. Amazing as much as they might dread it, that 171 out of the 176 total verses mention God's law and scripture in some fashion, usually in context like those in verse 14. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Verse 16, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. And a lot more. We'll take a whole episode looking at this psalm later on. Once again, let's recognize that at the time this psalm was written, the only statutes, decrees, and laws in which David would have rejoiced, delighted, and longed for were contained in the first seven to eight books of the Bible, and maybe a ninth depending on when Job was written and if it would have been considered scripture when it was. And after some of the Israelites returned from the exile to Jerusalem, recounted in Nehemiah chapter 8, the people wept after hearing the law read again to them after years of not having it. What both of those situations had, that too often we don't, is found in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 7 through 8. The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. So we have this image of Ezra reading from the law and the Levites standing among the people and explaining it as he read. Today, instead of the Levites, we have the Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth, according to John 16, 13, which says further, he will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears, which is fascinatingly similar to what we just read in Nehemiah. And hopefully I too will be able to help facilitate that in the coming weeks. Finally, the negative connotation of an angry God and a compassionate Jesus. Hopefully some of what we've already discussed is opening your eyes to this misinterpretation. But even further, as we'll see as we continue in the series, all those instances of an angry God came about first during extreme circumstances. We'll see why he had every right to be as angry as he was, 
but also that his anger still had the purpose and goal of reconciliation of not just the Israelites, but of all creation. Second, his anger is usually taken out of context. That is, we focus just on the times of his wrath and ignore everything that led up to it and skip over how long he was patient and forgiving and how many warnings were given before the hammer finally came down. The tragic result of this is that we can have a mindset that one little slip up from us will bring his wrath down again, that we might incur some sort of harsh punishment almost by accident or receive it from a capricious or almost bipolar God who might be happy and generous one minute and then suddenly the next instant wants to wipe us from the earth. I can assure you after all my readings of scripture so far, you will not be surprised if punishment comes upon you. Never did God do something without warning about it beforehand. We'll see this again and again throughout this series, if you don't believe me now. To close this out, I want to talk about one final thought that isn't really related to what we've been talking about so far, but it's something that popped into my head to mention, so hopefully this is for someone out there. It is related in the sense that one of the goals of this series is to kind of bring back together an appreciation for the whole Bible, Genesis through Revelation. And there might be some of you who have heard that a group of men, centuries ago, sat down and decided which books to include in the Bible and which ones not to. Maybe you heard this from Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, or the movie that was made based off that book. Now, to say that these men decided what books to include is true, basically. But that idea is intentionally crafted to sound as though it were some sort of whim, that these men might have simply discarded a scripture because it didn't fit the version of Christianity that they wanted to promote. One, obviously, that would grant them the most power and influence over people. Historically, though, what was actually happening was that other men, seeking just the power others fear, began writing their own books of the Bible, claiming them to be scripture and teaching that the rules inside should be followed. So what the early church sought to do in their councils was affirm what were the true and eternal scriptures, those that could be traced to writers who had actually been with Jesus or had been with those who had been with Jesus, by which we mean primarily Mark, who traveled with the apostles and probably most notably Peter, from whom he had likely gotten his gospel, and Luke, who traveled also with the apostles and learned from them and from careful research for the writing of his gospel and the book of Acts. And so it was no bending to whim or power that the church just picked the books of the Bible they liked, but rather they were attempting to keep out of scripture books that were not scripture, were not written by anyone with proven firsthand knowledge of Jesus Christ. So this understanding is perhaps more relevant to the New Testament, but I wanted to mention it and hopefully it was helpful to know. That's going to be it for this week, letting you off a little easy with a shorter episode to start us off. Now, most weeks, I may not let you know exactly what we're going to be studying in the following week. My intention is to simply start reading in Genesis 1 and stopping when I have something to discuss. But I do know for next week, we're going to be taking a look at the seven days of creation and some things to help us understand why Genesis 1 is written the way it is and whether the earth was truly created in one calendar week or not. It's always good to start off with some controversy and potential heresy, but I think you'll be able to agree with me by the end. Make sure to join me and we'll find out together. Until then, keep the faith and keep it old school. Music